ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Before Brendan Cowell became a playwright, a novelist, a director and a famous actor, he was a drama kid. And today we're going back to the 1980s, to the world of Brendan's suburban boyhood, where it all began, in the southern suburbs of Sydney, the Sutherland Shire. Brendan Cowell was that loner kid at primary school who read poems out at assembly, made up little plays and forced people to watch them. He was also a child actor, appearing in TV ads for cornflakes and for pavlova magic. Needless to say, Brendan was singled out for attention at high school because of this. He was bashed by the rugby captain. He had his head dragged through the urinals and the boys' toilets. And kids shouted at him to say the lines from the ads. But that began to change in year 11, when the right teacher came along at just the right time. Brendan has often drawn on these formative experiences in his writing, and he has a novel called Plum. Hello, Brendan. Hello, Richard. I had a couple of years of primary school in the Shire in the 1970s. I remember lots of brick houses, remember creeks, tons of kids in the street to play with and a cul-de-sac with a rocky park down the end of the street. Was it like that for you in the 80s? Yeah, it absolutely was. Well, I lived in Dolan's Bay, which is at the end of Gannon's Road in Carringbar. And that not only backed onto a nature reserve, but also onto a little estuary. So it was fishing, it was cubby houses, it was remote controlled cars, it was climbing trees. And in the cul-de-sac, all the kids were out. You know, 3.30 to 6.30 was a festival of activity. You know, the girls were in the sprinklers. There was cricket games where, you you know, you have to move the stumps every time a car comes back up and then you move the stumps back. Um, We all had mice um, we kick the footy, throw the frisbee. There was this woman, Mrs. Linky, on the corner. Who, if, if the ball or the frisbee went over to her, into her yard, you never saw it again. But uh, yeah, it was it was like you said, those long afternoons, beautiful. That there were they were endless, and and a real sense of community and playfulness. And the innocence of the Shire extends, you know, kind of just into your teens, and then it turns a little bit down in the Sutherland Shire. But for those days, it's the most beautiful place probably on earth to bring up kids. Across the road from our place in our cul-de-sac, there was the spooky house with the spooky man that lived in it. And I now realise I think he was just an old single man and a drinker. And me and a bunch of kids just sort of sneaked in and crept through his house and found him sort of sleeping it off in the afternoon on his bed. And we never woke him and then creeped back out again. Did you ever go on adventures like that with your, your mates and your school friends going up and down the street? Oh, absolutely. And, and lots of break and enter. Um, and, and, and lots of stealing booze and putting it in tall bottles and then taking it to the park and then going skating. And yeah, it was, it was kind of a low level crime was going on the whole time. And that was pretty much accepted because we all had skateboards, you know, and if a party was on in, in Bonnet Bay, which is, you know, 15 kilometers away, we'd just get on our skateboards and go. And then we go, go, oh, you know, Kelly's parents are home. We'll just skate back. You know, if we were hungry, we might smash in the glass and steal a big, you know, thing of chips. You know, it was kind of quite rebellious, but also really innocent. And that was the weird juxtaposition. We're all staying at each other's houses. This is more into my teenage years. So we did a lot of sleeping at the front of churches as well and waiting, you know, waiting till McDonald's opened because it had that 20-cent coffee that you could keep (laughs) refilling and, you know, so many stories of, you know. But that's why I think that a lot of those friendships I have from back then have maintained themselves 
because, you know, there was a real solidarity in, in what we experienced around then. Were your family ever churchgoers? Yeah. My, my grandmother, who passed away a couple of years, kind of lives right next to Jesus, you know, and, and you know, even though she, she kind of had the devil's tongue at times, uh, she was quite critical and not the most open-minded woman, but she loved the Lord. And so I, a priest actually said to me when I was, you know, 10 or 11, he goes, you'd make a great priest, you know, and I was going, I was going to the church, the church with, with Nan a few times a week, plus the, the days at school. And um, because I was a performer and a writer and, and which got me into a lot of trouble, the priest would say, why don't you respond to my sermon and put it in the kids' terms? So I'd get up and do a little bit of the gospel and I'd go, you know, when you're playing handball, this is how, you know, this is how Mark chapter 3 you know, if someone, you know, accidentally does that, that means you don't do that and you give them their ball back. And I'd, I'd put it in the kind of kids' terms and because I just love the stories and the performance aspect. And then Father Chris, who was a young priest who, you know, was actually a really, really amazing semi-counsellor to us um, and he'd also let us have a light beer here and then um, <laughs> in the parish house. He really endorsed me getting up after him and kind of capturing the kids' imaginations with the keeping it real sermon response. <laughs> <laughs> like if you've got five marbles and your mate's got one marble, yeah. you give him a marble, don't that's you? Jesus, right, that's, that's Jesus right, at work. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you end up in your first ad on TV? How did you get cast for that, Brendan? Well, it, it was definitely thrust upon me. My, my sisters were dancers and, and singers. My, my older sister, Belinda, until she got glandular fever, was probably going to um, be, be part of the Australian ballet. She was down in Melbourne and she was just the most beautiful ballerina. And my other sister, Jackie, who ended up in the, the girl group Girlfriend, she was at Keen wow. Kids dancing, singing and dancing. I grew up going to the Steadfords. I grew up in Mum's Sigma waiting for them to come out of dance class in San Susie. And, like, when my sister would get up and do Gloria Gain- Gainer's I Will Survive, I'd be seven in my overalls and singlet up the front. Go, First I was afraid, I was costified. <laughs> and everyone would be laughing at this kid who knew all the moves, you know. So I thought performance was pretty normal. And one day I was at the Keen Kids waiting room and there was a, probably 25 kids that looked like me, blonde hair, blue eyes, chubby cheeks. They went into this room with this weird 50-year-old man and then their mums took them downstairs. And then right at the end, they'd all gone and the guy said, come on. And I was like, what's this creepy dude want? And mum said, go on in. You know, she did, You know, she just got to put me in this room with this guy. Who knows what could have happened? I, I could have been abducted, mum, but instead I ended up in the arts. Who knows which one's better? And, uh, and he said, you know, eat the cornflakes and say this line. I think the line was something astounding like, I love cornflakes. And so I did it and he said, you've got a good head, son. And you can smile with your eyes, which in food commercial world is very important because yeah, you've got your mouths full, so you need to be able to show us you love, you're loving the burger or loving the cornflakes. He said, he said, who's your agent? I was like, mum. And she'd come in and we, we signed with this agent, Joan Gibson, um, in North Bondi, this old lady, and, and I started performing in ads. I did about 20 ads between the ages of 10 and 16, 17. Then I started getting to afternoon TV shows with one of the daddos where I'd be like the kid that eats spaghetti upside down, you know, and and then I think I got a little part in Sons and Daughters and I got a little part in, you know, Joe Wilson's Mates and the story of Les Darcy as his son and so I'm like, hang on, I think I'm an actor here. And did you like it? Did you enjoy it? Or was it something you you felt you were pushed into? Or was it was it all pretty much fun and games for you as a kid? Oh, I loved it. I mean, that's one thing that I've always 
known is what I'm about. And I think if I didn't have writing and acting inside me all those years, I'd be in big trouble or maybe I wouldn't even be here because it just kept me connected. It still keeps me connected and it keeps me on the straight and narrow, oddly enough. And I, I was performing plays in front of mum and nan when I was eight and ten and and I wanted to be up there and watching my sisters just made me want to be on stage and it, it came very naturally. When you did the Pavlova ad for Pavlova Magic, yeah. that was huge. I love Pavlovas, but mum reckons they're too tricky to make. She says you got to get all the stuff like eggs, cornflour, vinegar and vanilla essence. And this is the tricky bit. I'm not allowed to use the oven. Mum! All natural Pavlova Magic. What did that mean for you at school, being the kid on the Pavlova Magic ad? Well, there, there was this term in the ad scene called 100 percenters. And, you know, in the ad scene there was me, there was the redhead girl, there was a the slightly Asian boy, there was the tall handsome, and we'd all meet each other on these ads or in the waiting rooms. And I was the blonde boy with, you know, blue eyes and there was another one of me that I was kind of against all the time. <laughs> so you have that perfectly wholesome yeah. kind of tapestry of young kids, you know, and she got the toilet paper ad and he got the Crisco oil ad. And when I got Pavlova Magic, which was one minute of me speaking, which is called 100%er, it means you get $10,000. Because you're speaking the whole time. But it was a monologue. And because everyone was watching 7 and 9 and 10 at night, everybody in the Shire knew the new ad. A new ad was like a new Marvel movie. You know what I mean? Like everyone was like, did you see the new ad? Cows in it. And I thought, here I go, I'm going to be a superstar now. But that's not how it worked out. It it actually really turned on me um, around year 7 and 8 and and people used the juices fruity and the Crisco oil and the pavlova. All I used was his egg and, and, and that's all they said to me everywhere I went. And I was already getting mood at school because my name was Cal. So I would arrive at school and everyone, <laughs> the whole school would just go, mm, like the whole 400 kids from year seven to 10, all boys. And year seven to nine is a dark time and then it gets better if you're weird. But I'd just get mood, then I'd get, oh, I used this is egg, my juice is fruity. <laughs> it, it ostracised me more and I had really dark thoughts. Meanwhile, I had $17,000 in my savings account. I bought mum four new tyres. I could buy Air Jordans, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, But at the same time, yeah, I got bullied, I, I got bashed up a little bit. And I felt very alone and, and, and had some dark thoughts. Were your parents pushy about this? Were they encouraging or too encouraging or not encouraging? How, 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 how were they when it came to appearing in these ads or child acting? Oh, no, mum wasn't the Estedford mum. She was kind of, mum's <laughs> an eccentric, you know, and, and I think that's why when the doors closed at our house, it was very silly and playful and mum would make a production of everything and anything you could do, you'd put a silly hat on and you'd do a thing and around dinner it was all fun and games and, and it still is with her. Um, and meanwhile, my dad was really supportive in cricket, you know, and he was like, you're going to play for Australia. And that was kind of where I was headed. But they were both incredibly supportive. But if I, if I put up my hand and said, oh, I don't want to do this, you know, I remember I went for a Cambantrum ad. And, <laughs> and, and the line was, Richard, the line was, I've got worms. <laughs> and it was an offer straight away. And mum said, this is $8,000, son. And I said to mum, I can't do it. She's like, what do you mean it's $8,000? I said, it's, it is over for me, mum. If I go to DLRCL Carimbar the day after I've said I've got worms, like I might as well kill myself now. And, you know, and that was when I learned the art of turning down an offer. You know, that was the first part I turned down. Your parents broke up. That wasn't 
very uncommon. But was it uncommon in the Shire back in the 1980s for parents to divorce? I think my mother may have been the first woman to divorce her husband in the Sutherland Shire right, right. in 1989. I was 13. And everybody kept, you know, my uncles would come over and go, you know, are you okay? Right. And I was like, oh, it's bloody great. You know, I can get to sleep. No one's yelling and throwing wine bottles and frozen poppers at each other's heads and it's quiet. And on the weekend, I'd go and meet Dad at Miranda Westfield. He'd buy me a filler shave and a cappuccino and we'd catch up and it was so weird to catch up with your dad. So the sadness wasn't in the divorce, it was the lead up to the divorce. Yeah, it was It was, It was. was awful at home for a little while and Dad was getting home late and, look, I don't know, I was young but it, it wasn't good and, and my sister had also moved out with a boyfriend and Jackie was famous travelling around with girlfriend and so it was a lot just with me towards the end and it was really unpleasant because I loved them both. And my dad, like until that time... He was the dad everybody wanted. He he was at home at three thirty four, smashing me on the cricket, you know, on the back with the basketball thing in the thing, bringing my uncle down, training me, you know, and he wanted me to go far with cricket, you know, and maybe I could have, I don't know. I think I lacked maybe a bit of talent and some desire, and also I was always a performer, and I remember like after they broke up, I didn't realise, but there was actually an option for me to go and live with dad and. Mum said, there's this production of Donald and the Dragon at the Sutherland Arts Theatre that I want you to audition for because there's a role for a 13-year-old boy in it, Donald, the lead. And the Sutherland Arts Theatre didn't get a huge crowd, didn't have a huge subscription, you know, but it was a cool little, you know, shy-based theatre. And Dad said, there's the Carl Rackerman Cricket Camp. And because you're playing representative, you could And what go. is the Carl Rackerman Cricket Camp? What is that? It was in Queensland and I'd got into it and because I was averaging, you know, I was averaging well with the bat and I was taking a few wickets with leg spin. I think I was vice captain and so I could have gone and the British fast bowler was there and, and a few people look at you. So there's an idea that next year I could go into, you know, Sutherland under 16s maybe if, if I did well. And Dad was like, you've got into Rackerman's Cricket Camp so you're going to come and live with me and Nan your nan, and then you'll go to Queensland. I'll take you up there and you'll go to the cricket camp. And mum's like, you'll stay with me. You'll audition for Donald and the Dragon. And, and you're how old when this decision 13, is? 13, 14. That's a big decision to put in front of you, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, so what did you do? Well, I remember having to go and see Dad at Miranda Fair for the cappuccino session and and – and he's like, you're going to the camp, you're coming to live with me. And I said, Dad, I've got, got to tell you something. And he's like, what? And I said, I'm going to play Donald. And the life just drained out of his face, really, only because he'd put 100,000 hours into me in the backyard. And he was amazing like that. And he was 8 a.m. Saturday morning setting up the field. And, you know, he was a great sports dad. I think for the next 10 years we struggled. And Do you um, think he might have also been devastated because – you were going to go and live with him. He was yeah. going to have all that time with you. He was going to re-establish that bond with you, a father-son bond with you at, yeah. a, at a really important time, not just in your life but really in his life too. So do you think that might have been it as well, What he that, that sense of loss of what he thought was going to be a great yeah. year with your, his son? And I think his heart was breaking over the, the loss of the family yeah. unit as well. And he wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't the perfect dad in those years by, by any means. But, you know, and 13, 14 is around the time where you transition from seeing your dad as a hero who can do anything and all you're trying to do is impress him going, look at this dad, what's this dad? I'm going to throw it this far. I built this dad, I built this. And suddenly you're like, I think my dad's insecure. I think my dad's human, you know, and that happens around 13, 14. And I don't think it was till I, I, I got Love My Way as a writer and an actor 
and I bought a house on Australia Street, Newtown. And Dad came to the auction, and I won the auction against these two brothers, um, who were, you know, re- really going at me. And and we went across the park and had a champagne. And and Dad said, you know, in all earnestness, he said, "Well, I guess Donald and the Dragon paid off." Them, ah. didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know. And I remember, and he was just like, "I should have believed, like I should have known, because you're a tenacious little bastard." Because what he was, he's a financial advisor accountant. And when I said to dad, I'm never going to have a real job, mate. I'm never going to go to work at the same time. And you, and I just want you to know that now. So your expe- expectations are managed. And I think he was just worried that I'd be on a futon with a, you know, an apple crate for a coffee table for the rest of my life struggling. You know, he just wanted his, his son to be all right. Having said that, what was Donald and the Dragon like? Look. It blew my mind as back then, but, you know, I think there was more people on stage than were in the audience. Let's put it that way. I think we had about 15 people and lots of people playing dragons inside paper mache dragons. So, you know, it wasn't one for the ages, but I loved it. And, and I never, when I was doing it, I was never thinking about cricket. I knew where I was. So tell me about your first TV drama pilot, a drama called The Siege of Barton's Bathroom. What was that experience like for you? Well, it was unreal and then it was quite traumatic. Rebecca Elmalogalu played my sister and Max Phipps, the late Max Phipps, played my father and it was shooting out in French's forest and it was my first big part. And basically the premise was my sister had locked herself in the bathroom for these reasons and most of the pilot was me sitting in the hallway on the other side of the bathroom door talking to her, trying to get her to come out of the bathroom. Dad's really pissed off. And, you know, I was really young. 12, 11 maybe, and I, I couldn't cry. I, every time they wanted me to cry on camera with my dad yelling at me, I, I'd just laugh, you know, because I was a kid. And then Max Phipps, you know, he kind of grabbed me and shook me, and he was a big man and, and up against this tree, and he, he scared the living shit out of me, you know, as a kid. And I just start, I remember I just started crying, and then they got the two cameras coming in on me, and they got it. They got this kid bawling his eyes out, and it looked great, and... A couple of days later, I was already obsessed with the Cronulla Sharks and I was like, and, and to make me feel better, they were like, let's play touch footy with the kid after lunch. And so I was playing touch footy and I was running down the sideline. I think the director of the DOP hit my ankle. I went flying through the air and I hit the coffee urn table. I buckled the legs. The entire coffee urn turned on its head and, and I went inside it with boiling water and layers of skin fell off me and I was in agony and this Sri Lankan... Uh, boom swinger jumped over the fence in this suburban house and grabbed the hose and opened the hose up on me and apparently saved my skin. I uh, knew what to do. And I was um, recut. Matt Day was recast in the role and I was sent off and I stayed at home for the next six months in foam and people would come and visit me, which is when I established my passion for sympathy um, from girls and teachers <laughs> <laughs> going, you poor guy. I'm like, I know, come tomorrow, you know. Um, and I homeschooled with mum, which I loved because I loved being with my mum. I loved just reading books with mum and being with mum. And I thought at that young age, and this is weird because I was always weird, I thought this is a sign from the gods. This is hot water. This is a natural element. This is don't act. This is don't ever act again, mate. So Really? A sign from the gods. Yeah, I thought, don't don't be an actor. You got burnt on a set. The world isn't for you. And I think also Max yelling at me really shook me. It was, you know, he's a big kind of German, huge, scary man. And that and the burning made me go, I'm out, I'm out. Or maybe don't work with the ABC. I don't know which one it was. <laughs> <laughs> but 
we've all been scolded by the ABC, I'm sure. And, and oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, my instincts have always led me, and I just always went, I'm going to back away from this, and I'm going to write jingles, I'm going to write stories, I'm going to be an advertising, I'm going to be a, a novelist or something, and then, of course, that all changed inevitably. <laughs> I wonder if that had some effect on you, on focusing your mind on who you were and what you wanted to do. I think even licence to think about yourself as something special was something I always had. And I know that sounds arrogant, especially in an Australian context, but I've always had an unquestionable confidence in the fact that my life is important and I'm going to go for it and no one's going to stop me. Even when I was bullied and had my hair dragged through the urinal and all that stuff, I'm like, I would do a poem two days later at assembly. I would dress up and do APA and play one of the female members. I would be Olivia Newton-John in Greece. Like, just stop me. You're not going to ever stop me being who I am. I don't care. Punch me in the face. And so I always had that. And I think, you know, I wrote my book Plum last year in, in five months of lockdown and I had COVID for three months of it. And it doesn't phase me. It's like, here we go. I'll isolate again. I'll create something. And and I've all, it's always real, resulted in creativity and connection for me. And yeah, I, I was always, I guess, felt a bit of an imposter. I was always a bit isolated, but I never felt alone because I had mum and I had my stories and I had my imagination. Do you like your own company? And did you always like your own company? I, I did as a kid. Yeah, because I had to. And, and I was a weird creative kid and I wrote poems, you know, I wrote poems from books and books of poems to make sense of the world and, and, and to kind of laugh at all the people at school that were bullying me. But there was a while there in my thirties where, no, I didn't, I partied a lot. I would, you know, had lots of short relationships. I couldn't be alone. And I think I was very unhappy at that point. And in the last five or six years, I think I've, you know, returned to being probably dangerously too good at being on my own to the point where I'm like, oh, people, which especially in the last 10 days of freedom has been quite confronting. I, I love my own company now and I, you know, and I don't drink and go to bars anymore and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and oddly enough, you don't, you don't meet girls drinking Roy Boss and reading the Russians at home on a Saturday <laughs> night. They don't stroll past. So that's become an issue that I've got to work on. But no, I... Once you've read the Russians, though, your conversation improves and it does improve your chances with the girls. Uh, that's, that, yeah, that will happen over that. time. It's a, so consider that a long-term investment, Brendan, I'd say. Okay. okay. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about some of that bullying. Tell me how you got on the wrong side of the rugby team captain at school. Yeah, well, this was another heartbreaking one, and I, I don't mean to paint a picture of a of, of a victim tale, um, and I hope it doesn't sound like that. But yeah, I was friends with this guy David, and and we were getting along really well, and he was a really popular, good looking, sporty dude. And then him and Matt came over to my house, and Matt was the the rugby captain, big guy, and we were listening to Faith No More and eating so many chips and playing basketball. And then the next week, I think Matt and Dave were like, "We're best friends. You're not best friends with Brendan anymore." And you just get told. It's like how you get told you're going out with someone, you know, and you're like, do you want to go out with Emma Giuliano? Yeah, you're going out with her. You know what I mean? And I haven't had a chat to her about it. You just find out you're going in a relationship and could do with that now actually. Uh, and, and, so, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, and also you're fighting O'Brien Wednesday on the Oval. I'm like, what? I don't want He was at my house on Saturday. He's like, Cal V. O'Brien, you know, and, and then suddenly the whole school's Cal O'Brien, five, five, three, thirty, on the sand pit, on the oval, across from the cricket nets, across from DLSL Carimba. And I said to him, I said, I don't want to fight you, Matt. I don't know what I've done. I've got no interest in having a violent exchange with you. And he's like, 
we'll fight, you know, not you. We're going to have a fight. And then Smith wasn't talking to me anymore. And I went to bowl at recess. Smith hit me with a cream bun. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. And, yeah, the ads were on and I was the theatre kid and I was an easy target to kind of further ostracise. And so I went and saw the principal, Dennis, and I said, Dennis, you know, because I was vice captain or captain of year seven and eight. I was always vice captain or captain of the year, um, which was great because you got to meet with the girls from OLMC and have a session with them and maybe even a pash with one of the vice captains, you know, both of you wearing your stack hats and it was great. And and you organise events and stuff. And I had a suggestion box at school, but most of the suggestions kids put in with cows are poof, more surfing, more days off. I'm like, thanks for the suggestions, guys. Uh, loving it. Uh yeah, and so I um I t- I went to the principal, and I said, Dennis, you know I've got to fight Matt on Wednesday, and he's my friend, and I have nothing against him, and I don't really understand. Can you help me, please? Because he was always really nice to me, and he said, Brendan, for a guy in your position, I could only say that sometimes in a man's life he has to do a couple of things he might not like to do, and I would say. If you turn up Wednesday and do your best, school life's going to be a lot better for you, young man. And kind of walked out on my, the principal's telling me to go to a fight. I mean, can you imagine that now in the progressive school or something? The hundred parents will be in there going, how dare you? You must be fight. You must go to ethical prison. That's right. Yeah. Ethical prison. <laughs> but I remember three o'clock on the Wednesday getting on my BMX and people are mooing and people like fight and I was like, I can ride home now, go and sit in my weird cave in Dolan's Bay and hide or tell mum. And then I was going to go do that. Then I just turned the bike and went, just go and just go and fight. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. So you were saying for no apparent reason, the captain of the rugby team had picked a fight with you and you were sort of told you had to show up for it after school. What happened when you got there? So I went to the Oval and I was like, cow, cow, Brian. And I got on the sand bit and he's like, you ready? Three knockdowns, three knockdowns. And I went, Matt, knock me down three times. I'm not going to hit you. I don't dislike you. And he's like, yeah, yeah. Comes over, he goes, bang, big right hand. Decked me in the face. Black eye. I fall down. Everyone's like, ah. I get back up. I don't put my hands up. I go, I'm not going to hit you, mate. And he comes over, he goes, Bang, punched me in the head again. Got back up, said, I'm not going to hit you. He goes, you're not going to fight me. And I went, nah, and he goes, bang, hits me again. And then he got up and he's like, good fight, and walked off. And suddenly the whole crowd were like, that was weird. The next day I come to school, everyone's like, Cal's tough. No one messed with me again. And also I was playing in the footy team and I was a great tackler, but something happened. By taking three punches... Suddenly, the guy they all called the F and the P word because I was theatery. Suddenly, I was tough because I took three punches from a big guy. And, and Dennis O'Brien, in all his peculiar wisdom, he was right. Get punched, have a fight, 
and that that will put you further up the pecking order of toughness and people will leave you alone and they'll find the next kid to bully. You know, I think in that moment when he knocked you down the third time, that was oddly enough a moment of weird vulnerability for him. That's like, right. You, you'd taken his honour from him. He was hitting a man who wasn't going to fight back and he no. hit you three times. Yeah. So that was a shameful thing for him to do. Yeah. And I think maybe, I'm just guessing, maybe part of him knew that, which is why he had to oh, accord you honour and go, oh, good fight, Brendan. That's, yeah. That's, a, that's, that's pretty shabby. It's like a guy sobering up on a Saturday night halfway uh, through doing something he's not proud of, you know, and it was like Matt yeah. was kind of doing that and he was kind of looking at me and everyone's egging him on. So he's going off that too. And I think he started looking at me going, why do I hate this guy? Which is what I was trying to say to him. What happened? And there was so much of that. Like even on the bus, a person would just smash you with their backpack, rip your tie off, punch you in the head. And that just happened to guys like me. And it was really standard. And, and, and it happened with Bart, who ended up being my best mate. You know, like the, it was just violent. And, and it was just part of it. And when you went to school every day, you were going to get knocked around a bit, especially, you know, if you're in the kind of low, lower echelon or you're eccentric. And in year seven, eight, and nine, year nine, I think, is the darkest year on earth in Australian suburbia. If you are 3% different, you're fucked. Suddenly in year 10, 11, and 12, everyone's desperate for a personality. They all want to be weird and gregarious and have female friends. Suddenly the weird kids are like, oh, he's playing in a band. I want to play in a band. He's wearing a crazy T-shirt. He's got a mohawk. He goes to raves. And suddenly being the eccentric, you know, you're a hero. So you just got to survive the horrible years seven, eight, and nine and not die. And then all of a sudden your eccentricities are kind of lauded. There was another friendship you had with the big school bully, a guy named Bart. Tell me a bit about Bart and how, how he was with you to begin with. Bart was a beautiful specimen, um, a Ken doll. He was six foot four. Um, God. And model, American college boy model good looks, Calvin Klein good looks. Um, and he had an older brother, um, Ben, who was bouncing in the city and a big guy and big gym guy. And Bart was beautiful and, um, and terrifying. Uh, he worked out, he, he took steroids um, and already, you know, in year 9 and 10 and um, he was feared and women loved him, men feared him. And... He, yeah, he'd have a crack at me because I was part of the the bullying, you know, theatre weirdos um, and I was often very scared of him. I, I remember the, the school coming to me because I was already excelling in English and they said, you can earn $22 an hour cash tutoring kids. And I went, oh, yeah, I'll do that, $22. Like, beats a combantron ad, doesn't it? Yeah. It really, well, from turning down the combantron ad, I had to make that money back somehow. <laughs> that was $8,000 I wasn't going to get from a worms, you know, <laughs> uh, endorsement. So, like, I'm going to have to do – I'm going to have to do 40 hours with, with a kid that can't read. Um, and that ended up being Bart. And I was like, I've got, I've got Bart. And they're like, yeah. And I had another kid who was a friend of the family. Um, and so I'd done that and I'd gone really well. I'd really enjoyed it. And, you, you know, you learn so much from teaching someone something and I love the word. I love the letter. I love what words do. So I could have done it for hours and I did. And I was sent Bart and I went over to his house and his house has got moose heads and, 
and lion heads on the wall from where his dad hunted them in Africa. Wow. And it was right. this wild. Intimidating. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> For my next. Exactly. cow going to be up there next. And he was in there washing his boat. Right. He didn't say a lot and, yeah. you know, and the mum was lovely. She always had a white wine. The fire was on and. Then his brother would be on the on the balcony with BB guns, shooting magpies and drinking, and there was older women there, you know, with boobs and stuff and, you know, and Verdi and went to nightclubs, you know what I mean? And he was 15 and 16 and it was I, it was oddly warm. It was really lovely. I felt instantly quite at home there and, and there was a movie on called This Violent World about all these violent things. Bart's like, check this out, you know, and this guy cuts his tongue off. And I would watch that with him and, and then we'd go and, you know, they'd be like, but you've got to do your special learning and, and he couldn't read, you know, and he was, I think he, he would have been dyslexic. A lot of these things, they weren't. Dyslexia wasn't really no. spoken of widely. Then I think it might have been identified, it probably was, but it yeah. wasn't commonly used and it wasn't seen as an obvious explanation for why an otherwise bright kid yeah. might not be reading. Nor was there any mental health diagnoses or anything as well and ADHDs and anxieties and panic and depression and none of that no, and, was and, around. You were just a moody kid. That's right. And the treatment for it was to get punched in the head three times in the playground. Exactly. Or that's drink right. your dad's beer, you know what I mean, and, and or one of the two. And and when the first time I sat down with Bart, Bart said, you tell anyone about this, I will kill you. And when Bart says that, he means it. And and he'd already smacked me in the head, you know, at Gunham out of Bay at a dance because he thought that I said something to a girl about him. He'd smash me into a wall. He'd hit me on the bus. You know, he had other guys he preferred to pick on more. But he scared the shit out of me. Um, and then he, I started to get to know him and I started to teach him stuff. And we would then play a bit of basketball. And I was quite a good point guard, excellent passer, hit the threes. He was a big tall guy who could play. We won a comp together. I mean, I remember playing in the grand final up at Sutherland Basketball Courts and I was I, I, I got a, a fast break and I was going up for the layup and a guy hit me, pushed me into the brick wall. Bart got the guy, held his chin up and just went bang and broke the guy's jaw. He wasn't allowed back into Sutherland Basketball for six months. But if anyone went near me, he would kill them. And that's what happened at school. You know, after I started playing basketball with him, after I started teaching him how to read, he just went into the schoolyard and went, cows with me. No one touched me again. I had Bart's protection. And also he was then like, what's this drama shit? You know, and so he, he joined in year 11 and 12, he came into the drama group. There's chicks there and it's a bludge which is why everyone joined drama. Did he, Did he? I mean, I'm sure that's part of it, but was that all there was to it? Do you think there was There was something more to it than that? Do you think he might oh, have actually been into the, the kind of, he might actually have a, a sneaking regard for the art of it all? And especially standing there being looked at because that's all he ever wanted and everyone wanted to look at him. I mean, he'd come over to my house and he'd tell my mum she looked sexy with the low cleavage top <laughs> and, and my sisters would be like, is Bart coming? Is he going to get in the pool? Because he was bloody gorgeous. He was gorgeous and also he was building up and I remember when he got too far into the steroids and he started to get the female boobs and he's like, oh, I just get an operation, you never get them back again, it's awesome. And I was like, you know, and he was sitting there naked drinking a chocolate move in bed and I'm like, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to tutor the guy, right. you know, and, and then after a while he got into the nightclub, the tank nightclub scene and everything and he'd leave school Thursday, come back kind of Monday afternoon and... He, he would have had a big party and he'd be bouncing in there and, and he often started saying, you know, here for a good time, not a long time. And um, it got a little scary and 
But he came and visited me when I went to university in Bathurst. He visited me a few times, but he was meant to come to my um, to my major work, but he didn't make it up. And and then, yeah, shortly after my 21st, he turned up to my 21st in Wynyard quite late with about 15 people from the nightclub, you know, and my, my Catholic suburban family like, what is going on? And, um, you know, he called me one night and we had a – you know, he said, I need a real mate. And I was, and I said, mate, I'm back in Bathurst. I'm going to come to Cronulla. We're just going to play golf. We're going to eat kebabs. We're going to chase girls. We're going to surf. We're going to hang out. Um, and I said, I can't wait to see you guys. Yeah, I really need you, mate. I really need, I really need a mate. And I was like, all right, chill out. Like I was the one being like, calm down. Um, and about short time after that, he took his own life. Yeah. And, um, and I think I probably, yeah, drank on that or agonised on that for another 10 years and I miss him. I still miss him. I loved him. He was the best friend I ever had, you know, and and sometimes he appears to me, you know. I was in uh, I was in New Zealand shooting Avatar and, and I was, on, was going on those eight-hour hikes because I had like three months off and I couldn't leave and so I'd go on these hikes on my own. <laughs> And this little yellow bird would come down and fly next to me. I'd go, hey, Bart. And this bird would find me on all these hikes. And I was like, hey, Bart. And 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 we would have a little chat. And then right at the end, I'd be like, okay, piss off, you know. And the bird would piss off. And it was him. And I know he's there. And it really annoys me because, you know, and that's what my first book, How It Feels, was kind of about. Like, why do these beautiful boys not make it out of their youth? And it was really prevalent. I think Sutherland Shire is the highest youth suicide rate amongst young men and there's so much beauty there, but there's something that's not being discussed, which is in that violence, which is in that shame and that third hit and the dads and the the lack of an emotional language. And that's something I've tried to do with my uh, work is question that, you know, why do young men not make it out of their youth? And uh, as much as he was saying, you know, he, he had surfed every wave, he had had great sex and drugs and everything, but there was another part there because he's a really charming intelligent observant man and he was really amazing and I, and I miss him what do you think happened to him was he depressive by nature or did you think he just had a bad week no i think there was a a group of guys who were all talking about it and i think it was there was a mission statement oh. and, uh, and and i think there was oh, like no. there was an act there's often a ther- you know there's often a theatrical act of rebellion about it but i think now he would see oh, God, that was a small speed bump in the greater kind of roadmap of life. And that's all you've got to see is that when you're young, you get so stressed and you think everything is the world. It's not the world. It's just adolescence. If you can get through this, you'll see that life's going to always be like that, but you keep learning from your experiences, you reach out, you're going to be okay. That's the battle. Meanwhile, in your final years of high school, you met this wonderful drama teacher. Tell me about him and the effect he had on your life. Well, it was funny because I, I tried out for Newtown Performing Arts School because mum could see I was quite depressed and quite in a little bit in trouble and not having the best time being bullied. And so I went in Newtown Performing Arts School and I got in, you know, in year nine or ten. But then dad said, you know, there's there's homosexuals in there and, <laughs> and you got to worry about them and you probably, you'll probably get stabbed. Um, <laughs> Maybe buy a homosexual. Yeah, right. And when I bought my house in Newtown at 26, I said, Dad, we better look out for Whoa. those. <laughs> um, so oh dear. I couldn't go. Hmm. Dad basically said, you're not going to Newtown. 
Um, so I stayed in Cronulla and I wanted to get out. I, and I wanted to go amongst the pink-haired, flamboyant maniacs, of which I was one. Um, and I was going in and out of the city with mum and seeing movies with subtitles. I knew these kids existed and I was going to these drama camps. I was getting into all that kind of stuff and I wanted out of the shire. I wanted to be amongst my people and I thought, well, this is year 11 and 12 is going to be horrible. But then this kind of seven-foot Dutch man uh, called Ken Graneman turns up, you know, in his kind of old Toyota Corolla and suddenly there's drama in year 11 and 12. The first year the Shire had drama, 93 and 94. We didn't have languages. We didn't have drama, you know, and I'm like, what? He walks in. He's an expert in mime and mask. He'd written this devised play, what was it called? Zone, where it's all these kind of it, these weird uniforms and masks. He taught us that. We performed that. And he said to me very early on, because he saw what school was like for me, he said, make waves. And I went, what? And he goes, make waves, Brennan. You've got it. Make waves. And when I left year 12, he wrote it on the back of my shirt, make waves. And I thanked him in my novel um, recently because the more and more I go on and, and, and enjoy this great career that I've had, the more I see what that tall, strange Dutch man did to my life, which was he opened it up. And at lunchtime, me and a couple of the chicks from drama and the other weird dude, we'd go in there and we'd do, we'd do a play at lunch and I'd be like, okay, Kate, you've got cancer but you can't tell me and you're the weird neighbour who's blah, blah, blah. You're having an affair with him. Ken, you're postman. Go. You know, and, and we just do this awful play for 40 minutes till the bell rang but I was in heaven. And he also, you know, he played music and I played harmonica and bass. So we jammed at assembly and I formed a comedy trio with Richard Badalado and Sean Batman and we got up at, at assembly and the principal would say, you can't do that. He would go, go do it. Push it, boys. I got you back. <laughs> make waves. You make waves. Absolutely. Let art speak. Ken was just like going, don't let this world mm. hold you back. And, and the Shire and all the people that call your names and and the fact that there isn't a huge cultural landscape here of creativity you've got a you've got a career out there i can see you've got it in you go and go and bloody do it and don't let don't let them drag you down you know what i mean and that was a blessing and he's been there every step of the way with a little email and stuff and he, he's a lovely man you're still in touch we're still in touch oh, yeah 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 absolutely but he definitely, I don't know what would have happened without him. And I mean that. I know everyone says that in thank you speeches. I wouldn't be here without you. But I, I actually mean that one. So you got over the speed bump of year nine when yeah. into year 11 and 12 when it's kind of cool to be a little bit weird and have yeah. a band and be a bit, a bit arty. How were you around girls at the time? Were you confident with asking them out? I think I was confident talking to girls because I grew up with two sisters, mum and nan. And it was a female household. And so I wasn't intimidated by women and I knew all the stuff that happened in, in an all-female world. And I always knew that women run the show. Women are extraordinary. And I was relaxed with girls because of theatre and drama, because of mum and sisters. But I wasn't confident romantically at all. And I remember in year 11, like, I stumbled upon it, another thing accidentally um, where there was the debut. You didn't have a formal, you had a debut, did you? Yes, which is women's debutante really? into society as women. 
And I remember in year 12 when I went with the younger a girl the year below me, she asked me, and her mother really pissed on the night said, feel free to make her a woman tonight. If you <laughs> feel free to make Rachel the woman tonight. And I just looked at her mum going, what does that mean? Okay. Where? where? It, was, it was a different era. <laughs> it was a different era and they would wear the wedding dress sort of thing and you'd be in the soup, you'd, you'd, you'd pick them up with the cortege. Cortage? Corsage. Exactly. <laughs> Cortage was a type of car that I had. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, Corsage. Uh, but I remember in year 11, Lisa Mickelson, olive skin, mercurially Elle McPherson, beautiful, bit of a mystery. Her parents were getting divorced. You know, that girl that everyone was like, oh, Mickelson's hot, you know, and, and everyone was afraid of her. Probably just a really normal girl. But we'd fostered this myth around her because she was really striking. And also she was harder to get to know. And I remember talking to her and because I was sitting with all the girls with drama and stuff and she was kind of friends with some of those girls and I remember her going, are you going to the debut? And I'm like, ah, no. Uh, no one wants to because the girls had to ask the boys or something, you know. And I was like, no, no one's asked me. And all the sporty boys and the other boys were going so I just figured I wouldn't be going and – and I said, what about you? She goes, no, no one's asked me either. And I went, well, I guess that means we'll be going together. And she went, okay. And I went, oh, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so what, I'll just pick you up on the, with the cortege. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember turning up to the debut and they introduce you like your adult couple coming into the royal family or something like Brennan Carl. And Lisa Mickelson and like November Rain or something was playing by Guns N' Roses. I come through the flowery arch and the whole school turns around and goes, Cal with Mickelson? Like, and they were looking at me and I just strolled through the carpet going, I'm the man. Sadly, she danced with Justin Burstall with End of the Road by Boys to Men that night. And I was dancing with Tracy Archer looking over at her going, geez, I somehow lost it through the night, which was not uncommon and couldn't find her at the after party. But, you know, we did go out for a couple of months and we chatted about it at the 20-year reunion about what could have been. (laughs) But what it taught me was have a crack and that often the most beautiful girl um, is not being asked out because she's and she's human. She's another girl, and you're another boy. And don't ask, don't get. Like back yourself. And I think after that, I did that with my career. I did that with get, trying to get a park out the front of the opera house. Like just go and have a look. What's there? And you never know. And 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 that was a huge lesson for me. You were talking earlier about how you were really longing to be with your people, the purple-haired, gay, stabby people of Newtown. <laughs> Right, where, but as you said that, I kept thinking the way you're talking with such, you know, complex affection about where you're from, they're your people too, aren't they? I mean, and you've been writing about this. This is the thing that fuels your novel. They're your people as well, aren't they? Even though you sort of walked away from them, we've sort of been there this whole time talking about them, haven't we? I think that little boy in me, that lost little boy, is living there still. And I contact him when I write a book. And Plum is that little boy too, trying to grow up in the skin of a 49-year-old football player with a brain injury. He, he's stuck in that place. He's wounded, he's scared, and he's got to try to share his, his pain with someone. And down there, the greatest storytellers, because I grew up 
you know, the tennis days and the families and everything, big women in bikinis smoking and drinking beer, telling you about their job at Woolworths or their job, social workers, and just the normalcy and the bigness, the big epic lives that happen in tiny suburban towns. It's just, it's beautiful. And I think that's really kind of lives within me and and the boy is still back there and I can contact him. Um, through my fiction. It's been so great speaking with you, Brendan. I've enjoyed this enormously. Thank you so much. Oh, man, it means a lot. Thank you for having me on, Richard. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. 